Hi, everyone. I'm AJ Woodhams, the host of the War Books podcast, where I interview today's best authors writing about war-related topics. Uh, today, I am super excited to have David Wright Folliday uh, on the show for his new novel, Black Cloud Rising. Uh, David Wright Folliday is a professor of English at the University of Illinois and the Mary Ellen Vonder Hayden Fellow at the New York Public Library's Coleman Center for Scholars and Writers. He is the recipient of the Zora Neale Hurston Richard Wright Award, and he's written for publications like The New Yorker, The Village Voice, The Southern Review, Newsday, and others. And I'm so excited to talk about his new book, Black Cloud Rising. Uh, David, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks, AJ. I appreciate it. Yeah. And we were just chatting uh, a little bit before the show. So this is a, a very cool interview for me because David is the first fiction writer uh, that I've had on the show. And I'm a, a fiction writer. So this is this is very cool. But you're actually you've written nonfiction pieces in the past, correct? Yeah. Yeah. I started as a, uh, when I first started writing in my, in my twenties, I was a, a journalist for a short period of time, never a good one, but I was a journalist for a short period of time. When I started my MFA program in Virginia at VCU as a, in fiction, a, a friend and I, who was a first year poet stumbled on the story that became fire on the beach, my first book, which was nonfiction and black cloud rising comes out of a story that I that that I stumbled upon while researching Fire on the Beach. So I've yeah, I've written yeah, a fair amount of nonfiction at this point. Yeah, and the so the and this is a question I've got for later, but the main character of your book is the same uh the same man that you wrote your nonfiction book about, correct? Exactly. That's exactly right. Very cool. Well, let's just let's dive right into the book. Actually, let's not dive right into the book. Let's get some context for the book, and then we'll dive into it. All right. So your novel, it's, it takes place during the, the U.S. Civil War. Um, so let's just situate the, the audience a bit. It's 1863 is when this story takes place. Uh, so we're a couple of years into the war. What's going on? Who's winning right now? Um, Who is losing? What's, kind of the, what's the situation in the Civil War when you, your novel takes place? So this during the, uh, this, the 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 novel takes place in Tidewater, Virginia, Northeast North Carolina, and at that point in the Civil War, the Union Army has a toehold in the South, which is to say there are Union troops further south in in Louisiana and New Orleans, but then in the Outer Banks, the Union has taken control of the Outer Banks and also has a uh, a strong uh, um, presence in Tidewater, Virginia. Norfolk, Portsmouth, that area. So as concerns the fighting, they're going back and forth. But that Union toehold in Tidewater, Virginia is what, what allows the events of the novel to take place, which is to say slaves from all the surrounding regions are fleeing into Union lines. And the Union army at that point is realizing, well, initially they're using the slave labor to building, you know, encampments, you know, to help build fortifications, whatever. But they realize, certain generals realize that to form black regiments would, you know, uh, not only have the effect of removing slave labor from Southern, you know, uh, forces, but also would have a psychological effect to have the, the, these armies. It's contested in the North. There are some folks who are, you know, opposed to it out of, you know, just 
completely. There are other folks who are like, yes, let's use the slave labor, you know, as labor, but let's don't arm them. They think that blacks might not be capable of being soldiers. This sort of heady, not heady, this sort of uh, active de debate. And that's the sort of general context. And these soldiers are in, it's the, the African Brigade is, is this brigade, that, this unit that's been created. Talk a little bit more about, about that brigade, about, about this fear that, yeah. uh, that whites had with, with black soldiers being in uniform. Yeah, uh, about the fear first. If you think about it, I mean, it makes, a, it, it makes a certain sense. Um, there are several things going on, but a couple just sort of broader things going on. At the heart of Americanness, American identity, is this, it is, is this fight around slavery, right? I mean, before the Civil War, even in the writing of the Constitution, the, the three-fifths compromise of the Constitution, whereby three um, where black were, were slaves, are considered to be three-fifths of a man. That is less a philosophical point than a pragmatic point. It's not that three-fifths of a slave is walking to the voting box. It's that the person who owned the slave had that many more votes. And that was to try to keep this balance of power between the slaveholding states and the non-slaveholding states. So there's this just pragmatic question around slavery. Are we going to be a slave nation? Or are we going to be a free nation? That thing is out there. At the same time that in the South, as we move from, in the colonial era, era, as we move from indentured servitude towards slavery, slavery was not inevitable. But as the move goes from indentured servitude to slavery, particularly in certain regions of the South, the slave population just is, gets big, it booms. You know, at certain points, there are more, there's a, in South Carolina at a certain point, there are, there's a bigger slave population then there is a white population, and particularly in certain parts of South Carolina. And so it, it lends itself then to rebellion, right? So the Stono Rebellion, and I forget the date, but in the early 1600s is one of the very famous one, first famous ones, where the Southern white popula population recognizes itself at risk. Significantly in the 19th century, and not so far, in fact, in Tidewater, Virginia, Southampton is in that same area, Nat Turner's Rebellion, 1831. At that point in 1831, even in Virginia, you know, sort of uh, um, tobacco has depleted the land. Uh, they're having internal debates in Virginia leading up to that moment in 1831 where they're thinking about abolition themselves, right? Nat Turner happens, the Nat Turner Rebellion. 50, I think the number is 59 white folks, men, women, and children are killed. The threat of rebellion is a constant fear. So the, the, the fact of, or the, the possibility of armed black people, of armed black men in particular, but armed black people broadly, is, is, is just an undercurrent of, uh, uh, of, of Southern American identity in particular. With the African Brigade, it's really a few individuals who spearheaded. Uh, Benjamin Butler, who's in command in, in Tidewater, Virginia, but then also Edward Wilde from Massachusetts, a Southern, or not Southern, an abolitionist sort of through and through, and also sort of the most appropriate name, appropriately named general ever, even before the Civil War. <laughs> now he's got one arm, right? That, that, happens, <laughs> that, that happens to him eventually before the Civil War when he's fully, you know, he's before he's had these, uh, these, these wounds, 
he's trained as a, he's from a family of doctors. He's trained as doctors. He's trained as a medical doctor, but he gets involved in the Crimean War, right? He goes abroad and he gets involved in the Crimean War on the Turkish side. Later, he's involved with Garibaldi's forces in the 1850s. So he's got this, I mean, I think he's got sort of passionate intellectual beliefs that he's willing to fight for. And then the Civil War erupts. So he raises a, a, a regiment of troops in Massachusetts, white troops. They, uh, they fight at the Battle of South Mountain. He's wounded in one arm, right? His arm is more or less incapacitated. He's back home. He recovers, goes back, rejoins his regiment. They fight at Bull Run. He loses the other arm. So he effectively has partial use of one arm. He's back recovering. And it's in that time that he helps, if y'all remember the movie Glory, he's one of the people who helped the Matthew Broderick character raise that regiment of troops the 54th and the 55th. And I don't know if that's what gives him the idea or this is something that he had brewing, but he then goes south. And this is slightly digressive, but it was actually part of the reason that I ended up writing the novel. I mean, it goes back before Fire on the Beach, speaking of glory. There's a scene in glory, and I loved the movie when it came out. I was living abroad, being a I wondered what the, the intersections between your story and that, that movie might be. Yeah, it was 1988. I was a bad journalist in France. And uh, trying to start to write fiction. And I went to, saw, uh, to see the movie, Glory. And it was striking to me. I thought it was a, just a wonderful movie. I hadn't seen that story before. I didn't know the story. And I thought that, you know, what it was trying to say about, you know, just sort of revealing the active role of, of Blacks in the Civil War was wonderful. But there were two things that struck me. One, it's Matthew Broderick's story, you know. So even though it's the story of the 54th Massachusetts Res Regiment, it's really not Andre Brower or Morgan Freeman or Denzel Washington's story. It's really Matthew Broderick's story. I'm like, okay. But within that, though, if y'all remember the movie, later in the movie, when they're finally uh, dispatched to the South, the 54th, they go out on a foray into Darien, Georgia. And it's you know, based on a foray that the 54th did. And they do it with another regiment. But the other regiment of, of Blacks are recently freed slaves. They're men who have fled from the plantation or were liberated by the Union Army and formed into a, a regiment. And the, the way that the film juxtaposes those two regiments was striking to me. On the one hand, you see, you know, uh, Morgan Freeman and Denzel Washington, they're in these, you know, blue shell coats and these blue pants. The other, other regiment, and it may be historically accurate, but visually it had this effect. They're in blue shell, uh, shell jackets and red pants. And they show them marching down the road. And this regiment of recently freed slaves. So like yesterday, these men were on plantations, working gang labor, sun up to sundown. Once they're in the Union Army, they can't seem to manage to, you know, manage to march together. They're sort of bumbling around as they march. They seem really undisciplined. Again, recently freed slaves. At one point, one of them who has a musket runs up to his commander. And he says in this really heavy dialect, he says, um, Massa, me fire musket. And it was so striking to me visually and otherwise. It was kind of out of mistressy the way that they were portrayed. And at that moment, I remember thinking, I love this movie. And if I can ever tell those guys' story, I'm going to tell it. And that's a little bit what's happening here. These men were on, on, they were slaves, they were on farms and plantations, and suddenly they're part of a unit. And I just wanted to show their complexity of character yeah. and that they were, in fact, effective good soldiers which was the case with the african regiment the african brigade no you're you're absolutely right um there's only a a particular story that gets told 
about the uh, about the Civil War. I mean, really, all wars in American history up until recently have have been told through through the same lens. Uh, but I want to come back to that. Let's let's real let's talk about. So you've got the you have the African Brigade. How many people are in the African Brigade, and what is their what what is their mission? Why are they formed, and and what are they supposed to be doing? So there's the historical record, and then I, for the purposes of my novel, I manipulated it a little bit. Sure. What was effectively the African Brigade in history was a few different regiments of United States colored troops. So the um, what would become the 35th and the 36th, the first North Carolina colored volunteers and the second North Carolina colored volunteers, the first North Carolina eventually ends up going to South Carolina. So it's fundamentally the, the second North Carolina colored volunteers. I'm saying this, I know it's a general audience, but this is a war podcast. So for any sure. civil war buffs, I want to be a, on the historical side, let you know that I, I deform the record. So it's the second North Carolina colored volunteers that becomes the 36th United States colored troop. There's, I think it's the fifth, USCT from Ohio, and then part of a different unit forms the African Brigade. I make mention of the other two in the novel, but for the purpose of the novel, it was just cleaner and easier to just make it what was the second North Carolina Colored Volunteers. So effectively, there were about a thousand strong in the novel. In history, there were a little bit more. And so, yeah, about a thousand, I think there were roughly... 10 companies, and they were all commanded by uh, white officers. So they had a a black non-commissioned staff, and some of the criteria for being a non-commissioned officer, one of them was just sort of literacy, you know, because of the reports and this and that, whatever. You know, men who distinguished themselves or seemed to be able to distinguish themselves as leaders, but they needed to be able to read and write, which obviously wasn't very common uh, from that slave population. The white officers... Some of them had followed Edward Wilde from his previous unit. His, uh, the, 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 the head of the, so Wilde is the commander broadly of, of those men. Colonel Draper, Alonzo Draper, was underneath him and was effectively in charge. And he had been in command of, a, of another white uh, Massachusetts regiment. Some of his former uh, men came to be officers. The way that the Union Army incentivized these men to be officers in black regiments, because it wasn't clear that people would want to, was you could be a a non-com in a white regiment and become an officer in a black regiment. So that's the case for some of those men. That led to some problems. But they also found some men who were, you know, capable officers and and all that. Now, did many of the the officers, did many of them command for practical reasons of of career advancement or were they largely ideologically no they it was mostly it was a, practical it was yeah I, I i mentioned it it's sort of been passing in one of the chapters of the novel where uh, richard etheridge the main character is reflecting on some of the leaders they had and i'm taking that straight from the history you know they they the the the, the first uh, commander of his company company f was a man named ives ives and uh and he was a drunk you know, he ends up Draper, Alonzo Draper ends up running him off because he's a drunk. There's another man who was a commander of a different company, I believe, and I don't remember his name. But uh, he, I, I make the comment in the novel, I took it straight from the history. At one point, uh, he, there's a dog in the regiment and he, he calls him Sergeant Blackie or something, the black dog. 
and talks about how the dog was more capable than any of the black troopers could be. There were some men who were who had racist tendencies and they just went for the opportunity, the opportunity for advancements or, or whatever. Draper himself, Alonzo Draper, the colonel in charge underneath Wild, was also a hugely, again, taken from history. All the characters I took from history, the vast majority of them. And with characters like Wild and Draper and Richard Etheridge, for whom there was a fair amount of history, I tried to, obviously I'm fictionalizing, but I try to hold true to who they were as characters. And I say that as a way to say, Alonzo Draper was another hugely interesting, important figure. He was sort of self-taught, read in the law, but hadn't been formally trained before the war, formally trained in the law, had this, not just an abolitionist impulse, but egalitarian impulse. So he organizes, he's from Lynn, Massachusetts. He organizes the um, the shoe workers in Lynn, sort of this, before unions, this cobbler strike, you know, for better working conditions. He had this sort of egalitarian impulse. When the Civil War breaks out, he leads a, a a white Massachusetts reg- regiment, or he's a captain in it. But when the opportunity comes to serve with black regiments, he's, he jumps on it, again, for noble aims. Sure. Interestingly, though, uh, so there's a moment in the book where he makes a comment to a journalist who's accompanying them. Uh, the journalist asks him, a man named Tewksbury, who was an actual figure, asks him the difference between leading white troops and black troops. And Draper says a thing similar to what the other man I'd mentioned. He he says that training the men is like, he equates it to training a dog and talks about how sometimes you have to cuff them on the nose. I took that straight from Draper's words, which demonstrates this sort of racism racist beliefs that he had about black people, but largely from not knowing. So the thing that I try to show also is the arc of his character in the, over the course of the novel, because clearly his races or his racist tendencies or beliefs weren't akin to the other one. The other person, you know, was just there for, for advancement. Draper was an abolitionist, abolitionist and believed as far as I can tell in the capacity of blacks to advance. He just felt that they were at a lesser stage of development of civilization and then the men of his regiment are going to, you know, show him otherwise. Sure. No, and I, his character, and I'm, I'm glad actually a lot of these, I did get a sense that there's a lot of actual history uh, in your book with these characters and even uh, news clippings. And so I'm glad you're able to show it like that. So this, this, brigade, this brigade in your book, they have a very um, particular purpose, which is to um, hunt down uh, Confederate partisan soldiers, you call them bushwhackers, in the, in the novel. Was that the case? Was, was that their only purpose? Or was that just this sliver of history, this is what they were doing? That was this particular sliver of history. And they were doing a little bit more. And it goes back to that at the initial, from your initial question. This debate is, is sort of actively raging about the capacity of Blacks as soldiers, of African Americans as soldiers. Wild, again, appropriately named, he recognizes that armed Black men in the South, they, they will cause terror. You know, it will be, you know, they will cause fear in the local population. And there are parts of the South, like that area of North, Northeast North Carolina, that is technically the South, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's the South in that 
the state seceded from the union. But because the union is in control to the north of it, and because the union has a strong foothold in the outer banks to the south and east of them, they're in a sort of uh, limbo. So in that region of Northeast North Carolina, there are still active plantations. There are active, you know, slaveholders, but there's not a Confederate army presence. So some slaveholders are unionists. Some maybe by belief they didn't want to secede from the union, but they don't necessarily want to give up their slaves. They're, they're slaveholders. They, you know, they just don't, they want to be part of the union. They're, they're not, you know, they, they weren't for secession. Others were secessionists. And so in that sort of contested territory, oftentimes, uh, this was the case in Missouri too, bushwhackers, rebel units arose to try to support the Southern cause, to also to confront the Union Army that's just to the North and the South. Wild, recognizing this, decides that he's going to be able to prove that Black men are capable of fighting by getting them in the fight. And the nearest opportunity is against those, you know, um, um, rebel guerrillas just to their South. But the other reason, and uh, I don't know this for a fact, but it seems fairly clear to me that, that, that he must have apprehended this or understood this, most of those men come from that region. So in going to that region and confronting the, 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 the guerrillas, they can also then confiscate slaves, right? Slaves are contrabands of war. So all those slaveholders in the area, whether they're pro-union or pro-secession, Wilde's aim is to go down there and liberate the slaves. And for his troops, a lot of them are going to be liberating friends, family, folks they've known. And so that was the other reason for this particular foray. So the sort of dual reasons, showing that these black men can fight and at the same time incentivizing them to fight by the, 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 the area, the region in which their, their, their foray takes place. Yeah, it was striking in the, the novel uh, how much all of these characters, like they, they know each other and of each other. And I, I, I thought that was really interesting. Let's, let's talk about your main character, Richard Etheridge who I was, um, I thought was just a really compelling character and um, uh, really thought you told a, Richard's story very well. And I know he was a historical person. So maybe first, um, let's talk about the historical Richard Etheridge. You know, who was he? Uh, what, what was his story? Yeah, Richard Etheridge. I mean, if you ask me, he's this sort of fairly, he's more and more recognized now. In fact, he's I mean, to be honest, he's been in the past 20, 25 years, we are catching up to recognizing Richard Etheridge for the, his heroic role in, in history. So I stumble upon Richard Etheridge with David Zobi for Fire on the Beach because he's so during the age of sail, when most everything is traveling by water, you know, sort of, you know, before the 20th century. There were, in the United States, we formed what was called the United States Lifesaving Service. It is part of what becomes the Coast Guard later on. So basically, the early efforts at, at, at a Coast Guard was these, these uh, um, land-based stations that were about five, six miles apart and that were staffed by crews of seven. There were about 200 along America's coastlines. And they would patrol the, the coast at night and keep a lookout from a watchtower during the day and just make sure that passing shipping was okay, right? And they signaled them this and that, whatever. If a ship was in trouble, they made it, they had uh, uh, ways of going to their, to their rescue. 
of those 200 odd stations, um, they, the life-saving service was first formed in the United States in 1874. Of those 200 odd stations, there was one that was staffed and run by African-Americans. And that was on Pea Island, North Carolina. And Richard Etheridge was the first keeper of the Pea Island life-saving station. So just the fact of that makes him interesting. But his service as a Coast Guardsman, as a lifesaver, was also heroic. I mean, five months after he uh, takes control of the station, the station is burned to the ground, right? There's local resistance to the fact of these Black lifesavers. He mans his crew with rigor and discipline, uh, again, against the odds. And then in 1896, 16 years after he takes over the keepership, he performs this really heroic rescue. During a hurricane, the life-saving crew to the north and the life-saving crew to the south have quit their stations because the, 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 the land is being overwashed by, by the sea. They stay out there. They can't patrol, but they keep a watch as best they can during the night from the uh, observation deck, again, during a hurricane, which in and of itself I wouldn't want to do. They spot a light. They go down abreast of the ship. They can't use their equipment. And so what they decide to do, rather than just sort of let these people perish out, you know, in the ocean, the, the ship had grounded about 75 yards off the shore. What they decide to do instead of the equipment that they can't use is they tie a line between two surfmen. And then those men, anchored by another line to the, to the shore, to the, to, to the rest of the crew, go out to the, sh- to the ship. They swim out to the ship and take all the seamen, the sea, there's actually a woman on board too, take all the, uh, the mariners from the ship and save the whole crew. That's heroic in 1896, particularly in 1896. Just two years down the coast is the Wilmington Racial Massacre. So again, in this turbulent time, they're out there saving folks, doing what they need to do. The only recognition they got for it in their day is the picture that's on the cover of the book, the picture that my co-author Zobi stumbled upon and, and made him go, because he knew the, the lore of the life-saving service, he goes, wait, there was a black crew, and that's the only recognition. So um, Etheridge was notable in that way. Fire on the Beach tells that part of his story. And because that part of his story, there was some record- This is later on in his life. Uh, yeah, this so, is 20, yeah. Yeah, this is in the end, you know, the Civil War ends in 65. He joins the life-saving service a decade after that. And then this rescue is two decades after that. So, so yeah, he's more well-known for that. And then, and then your, your account is, is the, the beginnings of his life. Exactly. And for specific reasons, which is to say, when Zobie and I first start for Fire on the Beast, start telling the story of the later Richard Etheridge, where there is a, a fair amount of documentation, we uncovered a lot of it because a lot of it would just sort of been dispersed and a little bit lost. It wasn't hard. I'm not a particularly good historian, but just nobody had done the work. Um, folks believed that the records were lost, that they didn't exist, blah, blah, blah. With a little bit of work, we found out otherwise. So we were able to document the later Richard Etheridge. Consequently, I felt like I had, you know, as a writer, uh, I'm, I'm a writer who, uh, sort of character-based writer, character is what's interesting to me, interesting to me. And I felt like I had a notion about who Richard Etheridge was. So I was interested in the young Etheridge, but one of the things that was difficult about the young Etheridge, and one of the things that Zobie and I um, uncovered, until we did our research, it was documented by the, or believed, and then in the Coast Guard magazine in the 1930s, recorded that he had been born free, that he was half Native American and half Black. And all those things just didn't jibe for a lot of reasons with some of the record that we had. 
but we couldn't prove it because for slaves, there was just so little documentation. Zobie and I found him in the census, not by name, but by birth date. And so he turns out he was a slave, but also all the evidence we, we came upon seemed to suggest that his owner was very likely his father. And that piece of it was super interesting to me. In Fire on the Beach, we talk about why we think this is so. We can't do a whole lot more with it because there's just not the documentation. But that was the other piece of the story, the family piece of the story. That was really interesting to me, as interesting as a Civil War piece. Yeah. And so for me, fiction was the vehicle by which I could try to explore that piece of the story. This is this this is actually going to be it's I'm going to try my best not to throw any spoilers out there. <laughs> uh, so let's let's talk about the fictionalized version of uh, of Richard. And I'm I'm even more fascinated now that that this there is real historical uh, evidence for this. His father was a slave owner. Uh, was was white and his mother was an enslaved person and this really comes to a head with his brother because his brother his brother is white richard is is mixed race and his brother patrick throughout the whole novel doesn't acknowledge that he's even his brother i thought that was such a, a thing to uh to contemplate and to think about why that was. Talk a little bit about this relationship in your book with his brother. Yeah. Earlier, you mentioned um, these sort of received stories that we get about wars broadly and about the Civil War in specific. I remember my earliest memories of learning about the Civil War um, in school were, you know, was this notion that it was brother against brother. So that was my I, next question. That was my next yeah. question, David. I'm so glad that you well, just said that. One brother is white and one brother is black, right? Um, and so I wanted to, to sort of um, 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 weave that into the story. But then also this conflicted paternal relationship. You know, I'm thinking of the sort of uh, Thomas Jefferson, Sally Hemings story, you know. Sally Hemings raises an entire family by Thomas Jefferson. It's clear that they had some sort of relationship. So in the worst case scenario... You know, slave owners making babies by their slaves was just out and out rape. In other instances, which isn't the worst case scenario, but for me and my sort of understanding of just people and human nature, it's not the best case scenario either. And I think of the sort of the Sal Sally Hemming story, which is to say, clearly she and Thomas Jefferson had some relationship because, you know, he makes an entire family with her. And when he goes abroad, he brings her and her brother. So he's treating her preferentially as a slave, but still as a slave, right? So I don't imagine that as sort of like necessarily consensual because of the power dynamic, if nothing else. And that part of the story was interesting to me. What do the, you know, what, do, what does Sally Hemings feel like in that situation? So I, I try to get at that the complexity of that through the character of Richard's mother, right? At the same time that what do then the offspring thing think, you know, Sally Hemings' children, Thomas Jefferson, when he dies, again, he may have treated Sally Hemings and her family better than the other slaves, but he didn't free him. He didn't free him in his lifetime. And when he died, he did not free them. And so I wanted to get at that. It seems to me that uh, I was talking about this earlier, this sort of, especially in the 19th century as 
abolition abolitionism is really rising and strong, how there's this sort of more insistent propaganda campaign in the South to justify slavery, blacks as inferior. Well, it seems to me it takes an act of will to be actually in a situation like that and not recognize that the person you've known your whole life is equally a person. And in a place like the Outer Banks, it's even more so. Because in the Outer Banks, the Outer Banks, which you know stretches about 150 miles, before the bridges were built in the 1930s, it was super isolated. And the population of the entire Outer Banks at the time of the Civil War was about 2,000 people, and about 500 of whom were slaves. That's a really small town. I grew up in a town of 15,000, and I felt like I knew everybody. In a community of 2,000 people, a quarter of whom are slaves, you know a lot about everybody. So in those circumstances, where there are cases where, you know, slave owners are, um, um, are making babies with, with their slaves or with slaves, how do you, it just takes an act of will to sort of not recognize equal humanity in that other person. And that's part of what I wanted to try to dramatize on the page. So Patrick Etheridge becomes a really, really important character for me in the book. I was uh, talking to a book group last night and I was talking about this and, and this may or may not speak to you, but it, it's more of a, um, a fictional point, uh, a, um, a sort of uh, process point. One of the, because I'm interested in character and because I wanted to, 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 to dramatize complex characters, white and black, Southern and Northern all together. Part of what I try to do in the novel is, is set up these juxtapositions. And so the obvious juxtaposition is Patrick and Richard. But then as a way to sort of understand Draper, I try to also establish a juxtaposition between Draper and Patrick in their relationship to Richard, how their friendship evolves, you know, or in the case of Patrick, can only evolve so much. Wild and John B., John B. Etheridge, who's, who's Richard's uh, father. Sarah Etheridge, Richard's half-sister, and Fanny, his betrothed, his beloved. Again, in setting up these folks who have this different relationship to the central character that is complementary, but also in conflict, I hope gets at the complexity of the thing that we were just talking about. This act of will that it takes to, again, be blood-related to somebody. Know them your whole life. You know, grow up side by side with them and at a certain point be incapable of seeing them as more than what the larger society tells you they are. Absolutely. And I mean, Richard and and Patrick, they are friendly at, at the very beginning of the novel. Um, but like you just said, that relationship can only go so far. And you very quickly demonstrate that when uh, when the father comes into the into the scene and treats Patrick much differently than, than Richard, even though they're both his sons. And I, I'm, I'm so glad to give the, the audience, I hope this isn't a spoiler either, uh, to give the audience some context. So, so Patrick ends up fighting for the Confederacy. So you've got Richard fighting for the Union Army and Patrick, his brother, fighting for the Confederacy. And growing up, the story that's told, it's just like you said, like after when you get very quickly, when you start talking about the Civil War, somebody will say it was brother against brother. And that's kind of like that. 
you know, images are conjured of like two young white men in Kentucky. And like one of them like goes off to join the union and one joins the Confederacy and they both love each other, but they've got these torn allegiances or whatever. And that's, that's the story that, that most people get told about the civil war. And so I love what you did in your book in, in adding, adding to the complexity of that with, with Richard and, and Patrick being different races so what impact do some of these these traditional narratives then what impact did did those have on you writing this book that's a great question so at the university of illinois i teach a couple of courses that all that are all about americanness all about american identity and for me in the background of all this probably in all my writing but certainly in the background of this of this novel were some of those questions one of the courses i teach at I call slavery and identity. And we look at, you know, sort of texts created over the course of slavery and try to understand the history then of slavery through the popular representations of slaves and of slavery. Um, and that's in the background for me of this novel. Again, what I was talking about a little bit earlier, this, uh, the, the sort of hoops you have to jump through to imagine a Sambo figure of somebody who you grew up your whole life, you know, to imagine that, you know, that person is just sort of shucking and jiving or whatever, and or, or not shucking and jiving, but is incapable of, of, you know, sort of the things that you might be able to do yourself. The flip side, though, is equally true from the from the African-American perspective. You know, the shucking and jiving dissimulation becomes not just a defense me- mechanism, but a way of resisting, right? So I wanted to understand the the black characters in the novel in their complexity too they're aware of these images of themselves right minstrelsy these sambo figures they see those things too and they know themselves to be fully human and fully capable but during slavery it's maybe to their advantage to shuck and jive some after slavery or during the civil war you know we, we talk about it rightly as a fight for freedom The black men are fighting for freedom, but not just that. They're also fighting to challenge that representation of themselves. They're they're fighting for full citizenship, right? This is, the Civil War happens fully 50 years before Marcus Garvey. There are some back back to Africa movements. I mentioned some of them in the book. Some of the soldiers are imagining, you know, once I'm through with this fighting, I'm going back to Africa. But that was pretty rare. Those men weren't fighting for an opportunity to, you know, get free and return to some idealized African homeland or, or even to lead the South. What they wanted to be was fully recognized fully as citizens. That's what they're fighting for. So not just their freedom, but their equality. And I wanted to try to get at that notion some too. Is that kind of answering your question? Yeah, uh, it, it does. And, um, you know, I've got to say for in the, uh, in the, the sphere of civil war literature. Another reason why your book was uh, very interesting to me, my first novel that I ever tried writing, it was a civil war novel. And so like, I tried to like immerse myself in a lot of uh, civil war literature, just what other people have written. And your book is the first that I've ever read that has the African-American soldier experience at its heart. And before this interview, I was, I was thinking 
I was like, gosh, there's got to be some others out there. And so I think I did like a Google search, but it's, I, I couldn't find so many. I don't, I don't know if you had a similar experience when you were thinking about writing this novel, but I remember I read a, 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 a separate article about a reason why a lot of um, African-American writers and scholars don't write about the Civil War. And I went back and found that article, and it was actually by Ta-Nehisi Coates in 2011. So the title was, Why Do So Few Blacks Study the Civil War? And his, uh, his argument is really a lot of what, what you've been saying is the stories are, you know, it's, it's a story about white people. It's told about white people and for white people. Well, I guess first, I wonder if you uh, agree with that. But then um, do you think that with books like yours, do you think there will be more? Do you think stories about African-Americans in the Civil War, do you think that will become more common? So the first part, of your, that's a great question. To the first part of your question, I guess I would articulate it differently from how Tennessee Coates articulates it, which is to say, and maybe this answers part of your sec second part of your question too. Historically, like you've mentioned, the Civil War was cast in a certain way. And that way tended to be about white people, about white society, in the context of the benefits for white society. The thing that I think, the, the, the way that I would articulate it slightly differently, though, is that Black folks have always been a part of that. From the very beginning, I talked about that act of will that it takes to sort of rewrite the history that's happening right in front of your face. That doesn't mean that, that the thing that's happening right in front of your face isn't happening. It just means that there's this great effort to cast it otherwise. You know, if we think about the Civil War, this is slightly different. But if we think about how the Civil War story is told, our, under, our national understanding of the Civil War right after the Civil War is radically different. There's this sort of 50-year post-Civil War war that happens where the South sort of wins the propaganda campaign and we get all the statues and the monuments and the, you know, military installations named after Civil War generals. But that's the propaganda campaign. It doesn't, and so if we apply it to, to what Tennessee Coates was talking about and what I'm responding to slightly differently, Black folks are there from the very beginning. They're instrumental from the very beginning. Their contribution, and it's not just as labor, it's American identity. As a, as, a, as, a, as a simple example, think about minstrelsy. There's a book uh, by Eric Lott, came out 20, maybe 25 years ago, called Love and Theft. That's a, a history of minstrelsy. He's a professor at Virginia. Uh, he used to be at Virginia. Maybe he's not there anymore. He was at Virginia, University of Virginia when he wrote the book. The, so minstrelsy, you know, this sort of it rises in the 1820s. In, in the South, I think it rises, but it becomes popular everywhere where white men put on blackface and then they perform these skits and they play music, sort of imitating what they see as black culture. And so it's, it's got this mocking element, you know, the blackface and the big red lips and the, the characters are sambo figures and buffoons and all this. Lot's argument, which I find compelling, is that there's an element of love to that, too right? You're, th you're stealing something. On the one hand, it's called, the book's called Love and Theft. You're drawn to that, not just be, to make a joke. You're drawn to it because you're also drawn to the music. You don't understand the music. It's different from what you understand music to be. 
you're drawn to, to dance, the form of dance. If you think about dance, European tradition, tradition, traditional European dance typically happens from the waist up, right? Think of a waltz. It's just your legs that move. African dance, your whole body's moving, right? White people are seeing that in the slave community. They don't know what they're seeing, but they're drawn to it. And so in that mocking appropriation is also an element of attraction. And I think that's the complexity of it. Another really clear example is, is black mute, what we're calling black music. In the world, beginning with ragtime, so late 1800s after the Civil War, ragtime in the world broadly, in the world at large, is sort of recognized as distinctly African or distinctly American music. In fact, they sort of acknowledge it as the first truly American cultural production, ragtime music. In the United States, it's seen as black music and kind of uh, initially and kind of low music until it gains the same popularity. People want to call ragtime black, but that doesn't actually act accurately describe it. So ragtime music is using African musical rhythms, a heavy emphasis on syncopation, but with a European instrument, the piano. It's a marriage of things. The problem is that as a society, American society, we tend to not want to see the marriage of the things, right? So that's a long-winded and a little bit abstract way of getting at it. The central question is, I don't think it's, I think that Coates is right. The story has been told in a certain way, but that doesn't change the fact of the history, which is that the story is more complex. So to your second question, it's what I was hoping to do with the book, trying to do with the book, and I hope that more people will, and I think more people are, telling those stories in, I mean, sort of, you know, the, the current efforts in some state governments to, you know, quash these stories. That aside, I think people are trying to tell these stories in, in more complicated ways. And those are the stories that I'm interested in, frankly, you know. Well, uh, I guess then, um, why personally? So I know you, you, you had written another nonfiction book about Richard. So, so then personally, why was this an important story for you to tell? All those. For me, Americanness is about mixedness. It's about, you know, amongst the first laws passed in colonial Virginia were anti-miscegenation laws. They're not passing them because, you know, suddenly there are some slaves present and they might sleep with some indentured servants. They're passing them because they are sleeping together, right? Because they're creating their own society with their own interests that poses a threat to the ruling class. And so from that, we have created, America has created this really diverse cultural, multicultural um, identity. And not just black, white, race broadly, understandings of, of sort of ethnicity, the way that they impact upon Americanness. And we tend to, as a society, and I'm using the word deliberately, want to whitewash it kind of. We want to kind of reduce it. We want to simplify it. So for me, my own interest is exploring the complexity of our mixed cultural antecedents, our mixed cultural identity. Um, that's at heart of the story. So as much as it's a Civil War novel, a retelling of that piece of the glory movie, it's also, for me, just as much Richard Etheridge and Patrick and John B. How do they figure out how to be together in that same space? Wonderful. Well, uh, you know, I, I know our time is 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 ticking down here. 
first, thank you so much for uh, for this discussion and and really for, for being on here with me. Am I am I wrong that there aren't there aren't are there any other chronicles of novels about African American soldiers? There are there are a few. Um, but not many. I remember okay. doing that research when I was trying to sell the book. So I had to sort of, okay. you know, yeah. proposition. there aren't a ton. There are some interesting stories that'll fold some black characters in. There are also the story of slavery. I mean, we've had beloved, we've had more in the, the recent past, but it's also a story that we've tended to, you know, tended to want to avoid and have tended to tell in a certain way. Root sort of, you know, blows the top off that. So there are some, but there are they're not as many as there might be. Let's just sure. say that. Well, David, what are you what are you working on next? I um with that same theme of mixedness, um, I've got a novel. I have a complicated backstory, which is to say, my mother was a, a French Jew, um, survived the, the the war, survived the Holocaust, and after the war, she, you know, she was a fairly young person. She was a little, you know, revolté, uh, uh, as the French say. She was sort of outraged by everything. So she also wore a star of David. But she really embraced sort of communism, the anti-colonial movement, fell in love with a, a, a French, this was in France, with a, uh, a man from the French, an African, a black African from the French colonies. They're young, they have this sort of turbulent romance fall apart, and she sort of impetuously marries a black GI. Later, she ends up getting back together with the African man and, and producing a child, me. As an affair, she's still married to the black GI. So that story of that love triangle intrigues me, not just because of the love triangle part, but the African man, my biological father, was descended from the kings of Dahomey. So that recent movie, this, the, the Woman King, that's about the slave trading kingdom of Dahomey. Those were my ancestors. The man that I thought was my father, a black American, necessarily was the descendant of slaves. So it's that love triangle between a Holocaust survivor, the descendant of African slave traders, and the descendant of slaves. Wow! And this is a—is this a fiction or nonfiction? Um, book the, the, the the one I'm finishing right now is 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 fiction. It's a novel, and it's really just about the love triangle. But in so doing, I wrote a piece that came out in the New Yorker last summer called "Mixed It." I think online it's called "The Truth About My Father." And I was doing that in part as an exercise to try to understand the characters because I was, you know, bumping my head up against a wall, particularly with the character based on my mother. And a, uh, a fellow fellow at the library last year, I was a fellow, at the, as you mentioned, at the New York Public Library, suggested I write her as nonfiction. And in so doing, I, I think I began a memoir, basically. So okay. the thing that I'm finishing is a novel set in 1947. It's The Love Triangle. The thing that I will write next is more memoir, and it'll try to open the story up and, you know, delve more into the history and all that. Uh, well, you've definitely got a reader here. So I'll I'll be waiting uh I'll be waiting for uh, for it to come out. Finally here David uh, where where can people find you are you on social media if somebody yeah. wants to get in touch with you. davidwrightbooks.com is my website. Also just through the University of Illinois English Department, my my email address is there. Those are probably the best ways and Please do feel free. I, I try to respond when folks reach out. It just seems weird to me to have somebody who's interested in your work and to not, you know, at least have the courtesy to, to say thank you or something. So, I, you know, I'm, it may take me a little bit. I mean, it's not like I'm inundated with, with mail, but it may take me a little bit, but I try to respond. So please feel free uh, to the audience to reach out. Perfect. Well, thank you again so much. Um, David Wright, Falladay, Black Cloud Rising, 
go buy it, go to the library and check it out, um, read it. Uh, it's such a good story. And uh, David, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you, AJ. It's been a really fun, wonderful conversation. Thank you. Thanks.